0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, My name is Radley Balco. I'm a policy analyst here um, specializing in civil liberties issues. Um, We're here to uh, discuss uh, Maya's new book, uh, Help at Any Cost. Uh, Critics of the United States' decades-long war on drugs often consider uh, mandatory treatment programs to be preferable to jail time for drug offenses. And perhaps there's good reason for that. Sending nonviolent drug offenders to high-security prisons only to have them return from their sentences, hardened by prison life and intermingling with violent felons, certainly doesn't seem like good policy. We should be careful about mandatory treatment programs as well, particularly when it comes to younger drug offenders. Maya's new book offers lots of reasons why. President George H.W. Bush and 1996 GOP presidential nominee Bob Dole uh, both made these tough love, uh, boot camp type teen uh, help programs part of their crime control agenda. It seemed to make some sense. Talk to school administrators and local judges, persuade them to work with parents to send uh, problem teens to these vigorous, no-nonsense sorts of programs um, that would strip them down and build them back up and instill in them good, uh, good habits and character in the process. Unfortunately, as Maya will share with you in a moment, in practice these programs tend to be poorly and amateurishly run, uh, abusive, and in many cases parents are kept completely in the dark about what goes on inside. From the seed and the straight incorporated programs in the 80s and 90s to the WASP centers around the country still in operation today, the people who have survived many of these tough love regiments have come forward with some truly horrifying stories. Several kids have actually died as a result of tough love tactics gone too far, including a very recent case in Florida. With that, I'll go ahead and introduce um, our speaker. Uh, Actually, Evan Wright uh, is going to be a little late, so um, if it makes any sense, he's going to give his introductory remarks after uh, Maya speaks. Uh, Maya Salovitz is a journalist who covers health, science, and public policy. Her most recent book, the one we're discussing today, is Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids. She is also co-author with Dr. Joseph uh, Volpicelli, hope I got that right, uh, of the University of Pennsylvania of Recovery Options, The Complete Guide, How You and Your Loved Ones Can Understand and Treat Alcohol and Other Drug Problems. She is also a senior fellow at Stats.org, a media watchdog organization which investigates coverage of science and statistics. She's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsday, New York Magazine, uh, Newsweek, Salon, and the Village Voice, and has appeared on CNN, uh, MSNBC, and NPR. Maya Salibas.
1: Thank you very much, um, and thank you so much for um, inviting me to speak here. I'm delighted to discuss an issue that should be of concern to all Americans who care about liberty and about the misguided war on some drugs. I have to say, I first became aware of the Cato Foundation when researching drug policy years ago, and I was extremely impressed by what was one of the first thorough analyses I'd ever read of the drug war's failings, um, which called for a complete ceasefire. Now I was expecting, um, can you hear me? Is this working okay? Okay, good. Um, uh, I was expecting Evan to be here and to have told you his personal horror story, or a little bit thereof, of being in a program named The Seed. Um, But lacking that introduction, I am going to tell you a little bit about what The Seed was like. Um, This was a program that was started in the late 70s. Um, The idea was kids would sit for 10 to 12 hour days on hardback chairs and they'd have to wave their hands really furiously to get called on. And when they were called on, they'd have to confess their use of um, various drugs, otherwise they would be brutally emotionally attacked and, um, you know, called names, um, you know, homophobic names or for girls, you know, slut and whore. Um, And it was sort of days of constant emotional attacks. Um, and these, these, you know, almost no break. Then you would go home and when you first started in the program, you would live in what they called a host home, which was a home of somebody else um, in the program um, who had um, been there a little bit longer. Um, that person that you lived with would follow around behind you all the time, so you had absolutely no privacy, even in the bathroom um and then um you would be locked in your bedroom at night um no respect for fire safety you know um the kid would have his bed against the door and the windows would be locked um so and this was you know for kids um and they would spend months like this no privacy no music no reading um nothing but constant you are scum attacks all day okay So now you have a little bit of background on the SEED. Um, It was a federally funded experiment in behavior modification. It did not give participants informed consent, nor their parents, nor did it ever report the results of its research. And needless to say, nor did it ever return the taxpayer monies it was supposed to have spent on that research. It claims to have treated some 5,000 teens in three Florida communities. During the 1970s, and I know this from personal reporting, in more than one Florida high school, 20 to 30 percent of the students in that program, of the the students in those schools, were participants in the SEED. How could this happen? How could thousands of ordinary parents be led to believe that their teenagers were in such trouble that they required ten to twelve hour days of brutal confrontation, weeks away from home, home and school, locked bedrooms? How could anyone think that one in five kids was so bad as to need that kind of treatment for anything? The answer, of course, is fear of drugs, spread by dedicated propagandists with government funding. It was a fear so strong, even before the excesses of the 1980s, that you could yell drug and parents would, do, would, would allow you to do virtually anything to their children, even pay you to do terrible things to them. And it's only gotten worse. The fear of addiction, the stigma attached to it, is so great that even as far back as the 70s, a seed father was willing to beat his child in front of hundreds of other parents because the boy would not admit to having a drug problem. The father later wept when telling a reporter about what he'd done, unable to believe it himself. Ironically, the boy had never even taken drugs at all. He'd been accused of doing so by a kid he knew who attended the school. That teen, who had seen rock posters on his friend's bedroom wall, had been told that these were definite signs of drug use that needed to be reported in order to save his friend. So he reported him, the seed duly recruited his parents to force him to attend. Where did this idea come from that kids need to be broken through public humiliation, emotional and physical attacks in order to be cured of drug problems? Where did we get this idea that hurting kids will help them? Although tough cures have had a long history in criminal justice and psychiatry, in the addictions field, they start with a program called Synanon, a California commune founded by an ex-alcoholic and failed stand-up comic who thought that Alcoholics Anonymous would work better if it was coerced. When a junkie showed up to his no-holds-barred encounter groups and got clean, Synanon began to sell itself as a miracle cure for heroin addiction. At the time, heroin addicts were believed to be incurable. Sinanon took some of AA's suggested steps, which encouraged confession, self-examination, and service, and made them mandatory, isolating participants from the outside world and from distractions like music, books, and news. It transformed AA's emphasis on voluntary personal humility into the use of public humiliation, often of a sexual nature. And curiously enough... Forced confession, public sexual humiliation, and total isolation turns out to be a virtually identical recipe to the one which the CIA would discover is the best way to break a man for interrogation without leaving too many marks on his body. No one cared what it did to his mind, of course. Anyway, the seed was based on Synanon, like much of American addiction treatment, unfortunately. The two largest providers of addiction treatment in the country to this day, Daytop and Phoenix House, began their lives as Synanon clones. So in other words, we have an addiction treatment system that was based on a program that ultimately became a violent cult. Sinanon at one point um, stockpiled weapons, they forced men to get vasectomies, um, they forced women to have abortions, um, and they put a snake, a poisonous snake, in the mailbox of an opponent um, uh, to try to kill him. Um, the founder got convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. This is what our addiction treatment system is based on. Um, anyway, no one had actually even bothered to study Sinanon's miracle cure before they replicated it. The one state that did, New Jersey, found way back in 1969 that only 10 to 15 percent of participants who entered this miracle program stayed with it and actually kicked drugs, which is about the same rate that get clean if you do nothing at all. Nonetheless, the federal government funded the seed and its founder, who was incidentally yet another ex-alcoholic and failed stand-up comic, um, to apply the lessons supposedly learned with adult junkies in synonym to teenagers. Most of these teenagers, of course, were pot smokers and and not heroin addicts, but of course the gateway theory tells us that they were all headed for, for junkiedom without intervention. In the early 70s, however, some members of Congress, led by Senator Sam Irvin, became suspicious about federal research on behavior modification. In 1974, they published an investigation titled Individual Rights and the Federal Role in Behavior Modification. What worried Irvin, as he wrote in the preface, was federal researchers on prisoners, the mentally ill, and even children, which, as he put it, quote, attempt to develop new methods of behavior control capable of altering not just an individual's actions, but his very personality and his manner of thinking. Irvin noted that this research was being conducted in the absence of strict controls and questioned whether the federal government had any business carrying out experiments that could, quote, pose substantial threats to our basic freedoms. Interestingly, both liberals like Ted Kennedy and conservatives like Strom Thurmond signed on to this report. The report noted that behavior modification was not like ordinary learning, because it is, quote, not based on the reasoned exchange of information. It conceded that such therapies could be potentially useful in certain circumstances, but the authors of the report did not think the threat they posed to personal liberty should be dismissed lightly. Irvin's investigators discovered that the federal government admitted to funding a great deal of diverse research in the area. Only later would covert funding for other mind control research come to light. But one of the programs that came under Irvin's scrutiny was a federal fund, federally funded Florida program for teens known as the SEED. His investigators described the methods at the SEED this way. Individuals are required to participate in group therapy discussions where intensive pressure is placed on the individuals to accept the attitude of the group. More intensive forms of encounter groups begin first by subjecting the individual to isolation and humiliation in a conscious attempt to break down his psychological defenses. Once the individual is submissive, his personality can begin to be reformed around the attitudes determined by the program director to be acceptable. It is similar to the highly refined brainwashing techniques employed by the North Koreans in the 1950s. Neither the teens enrolled in the seed nor their parents were told that these methods were experimental. Nor were they informed that by 1973, research had been published suggesting that such encounter groups could cause lasting emotional damage. One major study of these groups found that 9.1 percent of those who completed more than half the sessions had long-term psychological difficulties, lasting at least six months following the end of the group. These included depression severe enough to require hospitalization, suicidal thoughts, manic and psychotic episodes, and reductions in self-esteem. There was even one suicide, but the researchers who did the study thought it was caused by other factors. The 200-plus subjects in this study were normal college students interested in self-exploration who could drop out at any time. They were not troubled teens with no choice in the matter, like many of those sent to the seed. Worse, the most damaging types of encounter groups, according to the authors of the study, were those with highly aggressive leaders who harshly berated participants and had group members attack each other to produce conformity. One of the groups in the study which had the highest level of casualties was Synodon. Obviously, the Irvin report presented problems to the seed. It's not exactly good PR to have Congress compare your program to Korean brainwashing. And investigators had reported to Congress on psychiatric problems suffered by former participants which professionals believed to be the result of the program. But the Seed had two powerful backers. Mel Sembler, who would go on to chair campaign finances for the Republican Party in the 2000 presidential election and who even back then was a major campaign donor, and another Republican financier, Joseph Zappala. Sembler and Zappala were smart enough to recognize that the Seed itself was no longer saleable. But believing that it helped fight drugs and that any means necessary were okay as long as it did that, they simply copied the seed, took a bunch of its staff who were untrained former participants and parents who, didn't, who often didn't even have a high school degree, and opened a new program. It was called Straight Incorporated. Straight was a perfect product of the drug war and a perfect vehicle to advance its aims. When Nancy Reagan came under fire for fussing around with White House china and spending money on designer dresses, Mel Sembler came to the rescue. He suggested that the First Lady make fighting teen drug use her cause, and he suggested a visit to Straight to inspire her. And inspire her it did. At Straight, Mrs. Reagan heard story after story of teens led into prostitution and even sex with animals because of their drug use. She heard young teens listing types of drugs they'd used that she'd never even heard of before. She heard dramatic stories of defiant, deviant, and dangerous behavior and, of course, how Straight had saved the day. The next day, she told the press that America was, quote, "...in danger of losing an entire generation to drugs," based on what she'd heard at Straight. She had no idea that many of the kids hadn't even taken the drugs they'd discussed, let alone been involved in the degrading stories they'd told. As in The Seed, if you didn't have a good enough story to tell, you'd never regain your freedom. Straight, in fact, would become notorious for holding adults against their will, even kidnapping them when they tried to flee. It would spend several million dollars settling civil suits related to such actions." So, Strait both fed and was fed by the drug war and its propaganda. Strait expanded rapidly in the 80s. At around the same time, the newspapers, TV, and other media were filled with dire warnings about the dangers of of crack. In the 1986 presidential campaign season alone, networks ran no fewer than 74 stories on the crack plague, and over 1,000 newspaper and magazine articles appeared on the study. That year, only 4% of high school seniors had taken crack even once. Only half a percent had used heroin. Thirty-nine percent, however, had smoked pot. This was also the era when Times' Charles Krauthammer proclaimed that children born to crack-using mothers had a future which was, quote, closed to them from day one, a life of certain suffering, of probable deviance, of permanent inferiority. No scientific study ever supported that statement. In fact, fetal alcohol syndrome is much more devastating to many more children, and cigarettes actually cause as much damage as cocaine does. Straits' newsletter, called Epidemic, pictured a corpse with a tag on its toe reading cocaine, crack, and kids. It said that the drug was, quote, the most addictive drug known to man and almost instantaneously addictive. Sound familiar about meth these days? (laughs) And solemnly included a tale of a 16-year-old girl who had recently tried smoking cocaine. One night I noticed a big lump on my back, she wrote. I was rushed to the hospital and operated on and had two tumors removed. The tumors were caused by impurities in the coke, which built up in my blood and got infected. Such a story, if true, would have made medical history. By 1989, fear of drugs had so consumed the American public that 64 percent told a New York Times CBS News poll that drugs were the most serious problem facing America. Not nuclear war, not the economy, not jobs, nothing, not oil, (laughs) drugs. Um... In 1985, before the propaganda blitz on crack, only 1% had felt that way. And as the years went by and the propaganda became ever more dire, straight became far more brutal and extreme than the seed had been. The seed program generally kept kids for five months. The minimum time at straight was a year and a half, and three and even five-year stays were not uncommon. In the seed, kids had to wave their arms to get called on. At straight, this process, which was known as motivating, began to look like teens were attempting to fly out of their seats. It was so violent that broken wrists, arms, and noses occasionally resulted from it when participants, accidentally or otherwise, banged into their neighbors. Strait also put kids on peanut butter-only diets for weeks, kept them awake with no sleep whatsoever for days by hitting them and throwing water on them, um, made them exercise to to the point of exhaustion, made them maintain stress positions. It constantly humiliated participants, famously gagging some of them with Kotex, Um, making those who had been sexually abused take responsibility for their part in seducing the pedophiles who had molested them. Strait also extensively used isolation and restraint. And Strait's restraint procedure was nothing like that medical euphemism suggests. What it involved was a teen being thrown violently to the floor by fellow participants and then sat upon by multiple people. Sometimes someone would even restrict the victim's breathing by holding the mouth and nose closed. This, too, often led to serious injuries, many of which went untreated so the program could avoid arousing suspicion from medical personnel. If someone did have to go to the doctor, a straight guard would accompany him to make sure that the program was not blamed for the injury. In addition, straight was notorious for restricting access to the bathroom so severely that kids would often soil and wet themselves in its groups. People in restraint, of course, were not allowed bathroom breaks. Amazingly, the stories of abuses at straight go back to its very beginning. News accounts of counselors and board members resigning in disgust due to unchecked abuse go back to the mid-70s, but Strait remained open until 1993, spreading from Florida into Massachusetts, Michigan, the D.C. area, and California, and with descendants in the New Jersey area, um, Texas, and uh, Salt Lake City, Um, and it variously claims to have treated 12,000 to 50,000 kids. Even more incredibly, there are still at least nine programs which use various combinations of straight tactics to this day, usually including host homes, isolation, straight-style restraint, lack of privacy, forced confessions, and motivating, which is the arm-flapping thing. When straight finally closed, the St. Pete Times ran an editorial headlined A Persistent Foul Odor, referring to the scent of corruption that appeared to be the only thing that could explain why straight remained in business despite decades of documented and serious abuses. In a series of interesting ironies, Mel Sembler currently heads the defense fund for Scooter Libby. Libby, of course, was the vice president's chief of staff, and the vice president's office was critically involved in the development of the torture policy for the treatment of terrorist suspects. So, in essence, the guy who popularized stress positions, food deprivation, sleep deprivation, sexual humiliation, and complete isolation for teenagers is defending the guy who wants to use such stuff on adult terror suspects. Frankly, I find the use of torture for terrorists a bit easier to understand than what we continue to do to teenagers, because there are currently several hundred boot camp, tough love wilderness, emotional growth boarding schools, and behavior modification centers, which hold, by my estimate, 10 to 20,000 American teens at any given time, and use the same old seed straight synonym philosophy of break them emotionally and physically to fix them. Some that you may have heard of include WASP, which is the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, which currently operates a notorious program in Jamaica called called Tranquility Bay, and one in Montana called Spring Creek Lodge, and one in Utah known as Cross Creek Manor. Governments in Costa Rica, Samoa, the Czech Republic, and Mexico have found abuses at WASP-linked programs leading to their closure. In Mexico just, I think, about two years ago, police video showed kids tied in outdoor dog cages. WASP currently claims to be making hundreds of millions of dollars and holds 1,000 to 2,000 American teenagers as we speak. All of this despite the fact that since Synanon, no one has ever been able to prove that any of their tough loves help anyone in any way. With regard to drug use, the programs which initially supported confront and em, break them break-em-down, scrub-the-floor-you-junkie-scum-style treatment, like Phoenix House, eventually recognized that such methods drive people away from recovery, not into it. Phoenix House now bans humiliation and confrontation for its own sake, although like fraternity initiations, it's hard to get rid of when people who have been through the hard way still staff the place, but at least they're trying. With regard to alcohol, one famous study found that the more a counselor confronts, the more the client drinks. The same has now been found true for drugs. With regard to teenagers, research on teen boot camps done by the Justice Department found that they were no more effective than juvenile prison. A recent NIH consensus statement, I'll sum it up from the draft before it got watered down, summarizes the issue this way. Programs which seek to change teen behavior through fear and tough treatment do not work, and there is some evidence that they may make the problem worse rather than simply not working. Such evidence as there is offers no reason to believe that group detention centers, boot camps, and other get-tough programs do anything more than provide an opportunity for delinquent youth to amplify negative effects on each other. And it's not just the kids who are bad influences on each other. I believe that there are situational values that make boot camps and other tough love programs inherently abuse-prone and dangerous. Nearly every single one of the boot camp deaths was caused by the refusal of adults in charge to take the health complaints of teenagers seriously. The most recent death, that of 14-year-old Martin Lee Anderson in a boot camp run by the Florida Sheriff's Department, exemplifies this exactly. Anderson had been made to run laps and do push-ups and other strenuous exercises just minutes after he entered the program. On his last lap, he collapsed, complaining of shortness of breath. This was interpreted as defiance, although as if fellow participant put it, why would someone complete all but the last few feet of the last lap if he was non-compliant? But because of the ideology of these programs, any refusal to do anything is deliberate and much, must be punished. So Anderson was given what they called hammer strikes, which are punches, was kicked, had pressure points applied to his head, which means they pressed really hard on the most painful spots on your head. Um, these pain compliance techniques had been banned for all other juvenile programs in the state. In fact, the Supreme Court has ruled that the law does not allow the, the state to use force on children or mental patients, even on death row convicts before ex- execution, unless they are a threat to themselves or others. But Florida made an exception for tough love. Whether that exception stands up in court remains to be seen. Another amazing fact about these programs is that they routinely get away with practices that parents would be convicted of abuse for were they to use them on their own children. So, for an hour... Anderson was kicked and punched, and a videotape of the incident shows absolutely no resistance from the boy. A nurse stands by, watching, once checking him with her stethoscope, then allowing the beating to continue. When the nine guards and drill instructors believe the boy to be faking unconsciousness, they shove ammonia in his face until they finally recognize that he isn't faking and take him to the hospital. By then, as it was for 16-year-old Aaron Bacon, who died slowly and painfully over two weeks of an easily treatable ulcer that perforated, as it was for 14-year-old Gina Score, who died of heat exhaustion following similar forced exercise and was left to lay out in the sun for three hours as she died, as it was for 60-pound 12-year-old Michael Wiltsey, who died when a 300-pound counselor sat on him to restrain him and didn't believe he couldn't breathe, by then, of course, it was too late. The reason the nurse just stood there, the reason the adults didn't believe the kids, the reason so many have died and been left with post-traumatic stress disorder, or been left with post-traumatic stress disorder, rather, (laughs) is the basic ideology of tough love itself. The idea that hurting people helps them is pernicious. If hurting people helps them, then a nurse won't intervene in a beating. By intervening, she'd be harming. If hurting people helps them, complaints should be ignored because if they are believed, stopping the pain interferes with treatment. If hurting people helps them, then sadism is charitable and empathy is cruelty. There are already situational reasons why people who run institutions that serve troubled youth are disinclined to believe them. For one, many troubled kids are difficult, and they do sometimes lie. Second, as the Stanford Prison experiment showed, if you put people, even ordinary people, in positions of power over others, a significant percentage will abuse that power. That experiment involved normal adults role-playing as guards and prisoners. It had to be stopped because the guards began doing things familiar to anyone who went through a program like STRAIGHT, such as forced exercise and making people clean up feces with their bare hands. If you add the power role to the ideology that pain is good for people, abuse is inevitable. And that's what led to every one of these deaths and to the countless cases of emotional and physical abuse that I document in my book. And that's why we need to get the government out of the tough love business and out of the propaganda business promoting it. We need to inform parents that not only is tough love dangerous and unethical, it simply doesn't work. It doesn't help kids. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And it hurts all of us by devaluing empathy and promoting cruelty. For kids who are genuinely troubled, we need evidence-based treatment. For those whose only problem is that they smoked a few joints, we need a sane drug policy that doesn't increase harm in order to sell its bankrupt ideology and keep government bureaucrats employed. Tough love programs need to go the way of Laetrile as a cancer cure and other quack therapies. No matter what one's views about the proper role of government, I don't think anyone argues that it should be to run programs that are both ineffective and harmful. Thank you, and I'd be delighted to take questions after uh, Evan speaks.
0: Thanks, Maya. Uh, I'll introduce Evan Wright now. Uh, Evan is the author of the new book, Generation Kill, uh, Devil Dogs, Iceman, Captain America, and the New Face of American War. Um, The uh, award-winning bestseller is an account of a marine platoon uh, in combat on the front lines of the war in Iraq. Wright has also been a contributing editor of Rolling Stone magazine since 1999. Uh, he's recently started writing for Vanity Fair and has also written features for Time Magazine, uh, ESPN Magazine, L.A. Weekly, Men's Journal, and the New York Times. Uh, Evan won the National Magazine Award for Excellence in Reporting, uh, 2005 PEN USA Re- uh, Award for Best Work of uh, Research Nonfiction, uh, as well as the Ant- uh, J. Anthony Lucas Book, book Prize for his first-hand uh, account uh, from the front lines of the Iraq War, which gave rise to the book. Uh, the book is now being developed by HBO as part of a miniseries. Uh, Evan Wright is here today because, in addition to writing frank reports on youth subculture uh, and crime issues for Rolling Stone, uh, he himself went through The Seed, which uh, Maya just explained was a precursor uh, to Straight Incorporated uh, and was actually shut down after a congressional investigation found um, the use of brainwashing and, and cultish mind-control tactics. Uh, so, Evan Wright. Thank you,
2: Well, thanks for uh, having me. Uh, apologies for being late. I was double-booked today and I didn't realize it until yesterday and they wouldn't let me leave early. Um, I don't know what I missed, but I've read Maya's book and um, I just have a few comments. I'm, I'm actually writing a book about my own experiences in the sea right now. Um, so I'll, I'll tell a little bit about that and how I think it fits in with the context of, of um, treatment for kids as well as treatment for adults. I live in California where we have a law now where uh, people can be diverted and go into these rehabs um, rather than going to prison. And so it's been an issue that I've thought a lot about in addition to my own experiences. Um, So I'll just tell a little bit about my my experience with the seed. Um, I was uh, uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And in the in the late 70s, on June tenth, nineteen 1978, I was 13 years old. I had been kicked out of a prep school um, for smoking pot. Actually, I'd been selling oregano to my classmates and they thought it was a really good high. And Which is kind of, it's interesting because in Maya's book, she talks about the, the fear that parents have about what their children are gonna do and of course, as anyone knows it's common sense You know, kids will push that fear as much as they can it's not just a social thing that's coming from, from the outside I wanted to scare my parents and in 1978 listening to the Sex Pistols was terrifying I also read um, Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice and wanted to foment the Black Panther Revolution in suburban Ohio. I didn't know that Eldridge Cleaver was already selling his codpiece clothing line, and um, it wouldn't be a great idea. But they, I was, I was um, uh, very typical of my generation and of kids that have come since. I was from a divorced home. Um, I had no parental supervision, and I was certainly uh, a kid in trouble in some way, and. Um, <clears throat> But what happened is, I was sent into the seed. And incidentally, the seed had already been investigated and um, discredited at the national level. But in Ohio, we were always a few steps behind and we had a seed branch. And I think, I, I don't know exactly what Maya said, but you know, her book is very clinical. Um, the seed was insane. It was, uh, when I was entered into this program, you know we use they use these um techniques of of trying to to change our behavior and it was sleep deprivation um this very controlled environment we were kept in for um, 14 hours a day and it was excruciatingly uncomfortable um plus we were uh, sub- we had we had boxing in the seat where they would Mismatch you with like somebody else. If you weren't getting along, you know, you would be um, beat up in a boxing match. It. But the thing about it that was crazy was it was run by this charismatic figure named Art Barker, who, um, to the exterior world, he he was telling people he was going to get kids straight. Inside the seed, he was telling the kids that 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 he was creating a new race of human beings. He called Homo Superior. Um, he, was, he was an ex-Playboy Club comedian, uh, a B-movie actor. His, one of his last movies that he'd been in as an extra was in a movie I think called Wild Rebels, filmed in 1968, in which he played a gun shop owner who's beaten up by pill-popping hippies. And what The Seed was really about was this idiosyncratic vision of the world by a guy who, who didn't like the 60s. And he learned some tools from Synanon and and from AA, and and decided to try to to uh, mold the 1970s youth into a likeness that that he found less offensive. So it was about getting kids to to not um, to reject marijuana and the drug and drugs, but also the drug culture of the music, the long hair, the clothing. So so. There were all these rules, and it's a little bit complicated to explain how it worked. Um, I've studied it since. But in, an, in a controlled environment, you can change people's thinking, because, I mean, the, they use the word brainwashing, which isn't really a medical term, I don't think. But you can get people to comply in order to reduce the discomfort that they're subjected to, to allow them to sleep, to um, To permit them to not have to sit on, in these stiff chairs in a certain posture, so he got some results when people came in and looked at this. now, I went through it, and it was uh, it was a kind of an interesting thing personally, in that I knew when I went into the seed that I was in trouble that there was something wrong uh, you know I was emotionally disturbed i don 't know what the terminology would be but I, I kind of thought, well maybe I need some kind of help. But when I entered into this program, you know, I thought, man, the adults in my universe are insane. I mean to have put me here, there's this guy lecturing us about Homo superior, um, singing I mean he he had a little like uh, ukulele, he would sing songs to us. And um and we're in these boxing matches and um there's no no um you know, sleep or anything. Uh, interestingly, I'm on a sleep deprivation program of my own right now doing to work. <laughs> but um, when, you know, the result of that and the seed, when I was returned to, to my school, I had become a believer in the seed program. And I had become a member of Art Barker's army. And this was after a lot of resistance. I actually ran away and the cops took me back. And I realized at a certain point, there was gonna be no way to get out of here. Unless I faked compliance And once I started faking it I could no longer tell anymore What my identity was And what the seeds was So I returned to school as a member of Art Barker's army And would tell people If anyone came up to me In class to, or you know, out of class To talk to me I would say I'm straight, I love you I don't want to talk to you No, I'm straight, I don't want to talk to you If you want to talk to me Go to the seed and get straight I love you because everything in The Seed we, it was always ended with this, I love you. And they had the group sessions where they would stand you up and and criticize you. Now, to jump ahead, because we can't go into the whole story that I'm writing my book about. Um, in 2002, I believe, I my editor at Rolling Stone had, was interested in Melvin Sembler, who was our ambassador to Rome and who was involved in the Straits, and And he... Uh, he assigned me this story not knowing that I'd been through the seed. And I went down to Florida as a reporter to meet with some people um, from straight. And it was a really fascinating experience because um, I met with, now I forget his name, the guy. Richard. Yes. Richard Bradbury. With Richard Bradbury and a group of straight survivors. And I didn't, I didn't tell them at first that I had been through the seed. Uh, I just wanted to hear their stories as a reporter. And it was interesting as a reporter because they just seemed like wackos, like the same people you'd meet who, like victims of, you know, alien abduction. And to listen, and as a reporter, I'm very cynical and jaded about people and their stories. And you hear, you know, they're, they're really upset. And I'm thinking, well, this is a population of people that probably was emotionally disturbed before they were sent into these programs anyway, so who's going to trust them? But of course, I knew that I'd been through the same thing, and um, that's that's when I began going back and, and researching the seed, and and um, I guess to, to kind of jump ahead to to where I think it all fits into today's universe and and where it really came from is is if you study um, uh, AA's twelve step programs, which. Uh, Maya refers to in her book, and and people talk about this as if they know what it is, but it, it really boils down to a couple of things. And I've read a lot of literature and talked to a lot of people in in this program, in in the twelve step program. And you know, AA was founded by a guy who was not a doctor. Uh, it was Bill Wilson, and he. Wanted to recover from his own alcoholism, and he he cobbled together the twelve steps from different programs that were already in existence and modified them. But there were a couple of key things about AA that that then um, turned into these other programs, such as Syn- Synanon. And the first feature was Bill Wilson had a spiritual experience, where the, what he called a spiritual experience, where he. Was an alcoholic who was drinking, and one day he had this powerful feeling of a, a transformation, and it, he wasn't sure if it was, you know, a Catholic God or, or what, but it, something changed him dramatically, and he he went on the path of establishing AA, and <clears throat> the question he always had is how did this tr- why did this transformation strike me and not other drinkers that I knew and. Um, after founding AA, you know, he noticed a lot of people would come in and it wouldn't work for them, and they would never be willing to to uh, to take on this program. So Bill Wilson himself, according to one book that I read, actually I think in the fifties experimented with LSD because he was he was hoping that maybe if there's a drug we can give it to people, they'll become willing to embrace this program and go on the path to recovery. Maybe LSD will do that, and that didn't. Work, although um, apparently he was giving it to his wife, and um, the AA people were like, "This is embarrassing. We can't have you, you know, dosing people with this." And he stopped. But you know, that was that was one avenue. But the the holy grail, even in AA and those that that culture, was how do we get people to be willing to change? And in Synanon, which Maya has gone into, they started this attack therapy, and the idea is. Well, the, the, it's logical, because in AA, they talk about people being beat up, like the, the guy who gets fired, who gets knocked around, and he gets so humiliated and degraded, he's willing to try this program. So what if we can just compress this all into a structured environment? And that was the genesis of this, and it, there was a logical reason for it uh, within Synanon. And, and this is what you know then went into the SEED program, which was the model for all of these others, According to my research, but the other aspect of AA that no one ever talks about, um, you know, and Aldous Huxley was a was friends with Bill, became friends with Bill Wilson, and he at one point allegedly said that that AA was the the greatest social movement of the 20th century because of all these uh, the the way it worked and how it influenced society, where people would openly talk about their their shortcomings and all these things, and and uh, it also created this amateur therapy. And this was a really key point of AA. It was amateurs, it was not professionals. And it was self-help. And the idea of AA was that you don't need to be a doctor or an expert to get into these therapy sessions and work in them and perhaps help yourself recover and help these other people recover. And it was amateur therapy. And this was really kind of new. And I think as a result of that, the idea arose that you don't need to be a scientist, doctor, or expert in the treatment of alcoholism, which then became any sort of addictive behavior. And so we entered, you know, by the 70s, anybody who wants to weigh in on this can appoint himself an expert. Now the problem is, there's two things about AA that I've observed in in researching this. Within the original AA program, they, they never got into the idea of forcing that spiritual change, uh, forcing that willingness. And the other thing about their self-help aspect is they never meant that amateurs would be lecturing to society about how to cure social ills. In fact, they, they very uh, consciously designed their program to have no opinion on outside matters. When they talk about self-help in this program, that was the the seminal self-help program, they meant that the individual himself or herself uh, determines that that there's a problem and that they're going to seek recovery and that they're going to enter into these groups of similar people who are all on the same path. They're not going to um, try to reorder society for everyone else. And this is a really subtle but important distinction because the 12-step philosophy is just sort of Entered into society as as sort of like freeware, and everyone's sort of tinkering with it and adopting it, and I think that that's a the origin of these programs and the origin of where they went wrong, and you know the last thing about it in for children and both both for children and adults is, you know it's wonderful that that they want to not send people to prison anymore. I mean I've always said you know in in studying this issue that the 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 comedy of sending addicts to prison is that addiction itself, it's based on the myth somewhere out there that that addiction is fun, so therefore we need to punish these people for having too much fun and being addicts. But really, for most, if you talk to any addict, it's a hell. So it's this redundant punishment. So it's wonderful that we want to send them into rehabs, but the problem is a lot of rehabs will say they are 12-step based but the rehabs exist within a larger structure of the court system and the expectations of society and the people who are funding them and that expectation is well how many how many chances do we give them before we send them to jail or or how do we measure their progress how can we quantify what's happening in these rehabs and you know that is completely contrary to the idea of the actual 12 step program which was we don't care. You know, the the attitude of AA was we don't care if you fail a million times. You're always welcome. They say the only requirement for membership is a de- desire to stop drinking or using. And so you can't have a re- you can't have a 12-step based rehab program that also has these other measures that are contrary to the 12 steps. Which is, um, you know, if you don't get it right within X number of times, we're going to send you back to prison. So, you know that. In other words, those are not 12-step-based recovery programs. The thing about addiction that I think and you might have touched on this is it reminds me of when I was in Afghanistan doing a story on U.S. troops over there, and I was talking to these kids that were um, our soldiers in Afghanistan. There was nothing there. They're out in this desert camp, and some of them started telling me, these hardcore guys, that they were getting high in Afghanistan, and I was like, "How do you do that?" You know, um, this was before they discovered the Afghans had hash, and um, they said, "Well, they've got Glade air freshener. They've sent to the officers' tents, and we're um, sniffing Glade." And you know, and if you looked at this platoon of guys, there was like one or two that couldn't get enough of this Glade, and they were just getting whacked out of their brains on it. And I think. What that told me, given everything I've looked at in, in my research and experiences, is there's a certain percentage of people in society that are going to be addicts or predisposed toward this. And within that population, some of them might get better and some of them won't. And the worst problem with all the whole rehab industry, whether for children or adults, is as Americans we want results. And we want to be able to say this thing, you know, works absolutely. Well, there's going to be a percentage of people that are never going to get it so far as, as we know and are just going to fail as addicts and as as recovered addicts. And you can send them to rehab a million times and it's never going to work. And I think it's hard for us as a society to accept that failure. So, um, you know, we've created this, this uh, great system of, of experts who are going to cure all these social ills and it's not going to work. I guess the last thing I'll the last story I'll tell is is an unrelated story I was doing for Rolling Stone about a a well-known celebrity who was had a drug problem and kept relapsing and he would go on TV and you know proclaim that he was drug-free and then they would bust him somewhere in an alley smoking crack and it was kind of embarrassing. And he went to prison and <clears throat> I was assigned to do this kind of sordid celebrity story about how when he got out of prison, proclaiming his 12-step his sobriety, whatever, he, he wound up in Palm Springs um, with a lot of cocaine, went back to, you know, and fell back into the hands of the system. But what I discovered when I did this story, and I got this from his attorney, the, this well-known actor. Um, this guy went into prison. There was like a 12-step outreach program of people that would come into the prisons and talk to the inmates. And one of those um, guys who was coming into the prisons was, was a recovered addict. And he had a dream of starting his own rehab in California and cashing in on, on all the money that was being funneled into this. And he latched on to this actor because he thought, if I can keep this guy sober, then he's my poster boy. I'll be famous. And and um, it was a great idea, and, and he latched onto him. The The famous actor was released from prison, and um, the only problem is he started smoking crack. Now, what his, his AA handler, who had this dream of starting his own rehab did, is he ended up, according to the attorney uh, who was involved in this case, he ended up helping this guy obtain crack. <laughs> So that he wouldn 't be caught out on the streets so that he could maintain the idea that he was still um, sober and successful and he could he could get all this credit and start his rehab now to me, that story in a nutshell really tells me everything I need to know about the rehab system and and the idea of funding it you know from outsiders or or whatever and um, i, I don 't want to ramble on here; I think my time is up, but um, thanks, I hope that was a, somehow instructive of something. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks, Evan. Um, there's a great story about Bill Wilson, actually, that um, was I think it was on a bio that came out uh, a couple years ago about him, where uh, apparently when Wilson was on his deathbed and in a lot of pain, he requested um, a shot of whiskey. And um, I remember reading in the style section of the Washington Post this story about the whole, there's a whole story around this and how uh, his nurses were trying to get it for him because they thought it would make him feel better and and his handlers and his family sort of went out of their way to make sure he did not get that last <laughs> shot of whiskey before he died because you know, it was important symbolically that he stayed dry all the way to the end even if you know it would have made him his, his eventual death a little more comfortable and I think that also says a lot about um, sort of our attitude towards toward substance abuse um, we'll open it up for, uh, for questions now Start right here. Hi, Mark Lerner. One thing I didn't hear mentioned that uh, we often hear in libertarian circles is: are, Do these rehab centers view these addiction problems as a disease?
1: Um, it's it's interesting. Some of them do, and some of them don't. And and it's funny because I um actually came to this because I wrote my book because I had had my own experience with addiction and was absolutely horrified by the idea that grinding people down would fix them. Because I knew that I was using, because I was feeling horrible, I was in hell, as he said, and more hell was not going to fix that. Um, The disease model, unfortunately, the way it operates in the United States is as a cover for the moral model. there's no other disease in America where the treatment is meeting in groups and praying and confessing your sins. If you went to a heart surgeon and he told you the only treatment was to go and meet with some other heart patients and pray, you would probably go to another heart surgeon. And the what Evan spoke about, about the unprofessionalization of the field is what is a lot of how a lot of these abuses got to happen because when you got from the idea that like pain leads to growth into okay let 's give people pain to make them grow, um, it became an abusive hell of brainwashing, and you know what for whatever the um, controversy over that term is. We do know that if you enforce the 12 steps on people, it is virtually identical to what the CIA does in its interrogation tactics. Um, and so if you do it voluntarily, it is a completely different thing. But so to answer your question, <clears throat> most of the American treatment programs give lip service to the disease model. But if you, there's no other disease where, for example, if I relapse with diabetes, they don't take away my insulin. If I relapse on methadone, on the other hand, they might take away my methadone, and that's ridiculous. So it is, it is they do all give a disease claim and then enforce moral rules on people.
3: We spoke about the Prop 36 model in California, um, whereas you have treatment instead of incarceration. Um, do you support the Prop 36 model because it's, in, in, in retrospect, it's more of a you can either go to jail or you can go to treatment, and if you relapse too many times during treatment, there's also a possibility of you going to jail, so it's, it, it, do, you, do you see a quandary in that?
2: Well, that yeah, case? I'm not an expert on, I'm, my book is really about my own experience, and I'm not a social policy expert, but from what I know, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, there should probably be some, you know, if someone's driving drunk you don't want them to continue to drive. If someone's high doing something, you don't want them to do that. But the idea of sending them to jail at some point uh, is contrary to the idea of, of treating them. And um, so, no, I don't think it's a good idea at all.
1: I, I actually um, have looked at this a bit, and I think that um, there's a guy named Mark Kleiman who's a um, drug policy expert, um, who I disagree with him on many, many things. But he has this idea, which is that instead of um, mandating treatment, you mandate abstinence. So in other words, if you get caught with cocaine, you get mandated to be drug tested to prove that you're not using cocaine. If you can prove that you're not using cocaine, you don't go to jail. If you can't prove that you're not, if you start testing um, positive for cocaine, you can either continue to try to do it yourself and go to jail for a day or two, um, or um, choose your own treatment that you want to go to. Now, I agree with him that ultimately, we shouldn't even be having, like we don't force diabetics into treatment, we shouldn't be forcing addicts into treatment, but living with the current prohibition that we are under, um, I think it's a much, it makes much more sense to mandate abstinence um, from the substance in question Rather than treatment, because that way the treatment people are not agents of the state. The treatment people don't have to turn you in, for example, if you relapse, because you're just choosing to get treatment. And also, it's a lot cheaper, because if you don't need treatment to stay clean, you can just stay clean. And you don't go to jail, and everybody's happy. Um, it all, it, so it reserves treatment spots for those who need them. It takes the treatment spots, the treatment providers, out of the role of being enforcement, Um, And I think it's a a better way of dealing with that. Um, But, unfortunately, Prop 36 wasn't set up that way. Nonetheless, anything in this system that gets people out of jail is good, but we do want to not have therapeutic prisons that can keep people forever also, which is another um, problem with a mandated thing and another reason for this system is better. Thank you. Um, Susan Phillips
0: from Connect for Kids. My question has to do with, um, obviously, the treatment model you've been talking about is, not, um, is neither effective nor humane. But for um, parents who are dealing with a child who is using drugs, what do you know about what kinds of actions they can take, what treatments are effective, and what are some of the red flags uh, regarding a program that would be potentially dangerous to their child?
1: Um, I I discuss this extensively in my book. There's an an, an appendix devoted to this issue. Um, Red flags, for one, are um, non-professional staff, um, not allowing the parent to have contact with the child, um, not having um, just sort of general fuzziness and vagueness um, there's a series of questions that are that are in the book that are going to be much better at answering this than I am going to be off the top of my head. But the um, the main one is, do they see kids as lying, manipulative scum? Um, you know, if, if you ask them, like, people can call up and say, oh, what's your complaint procedure? Like, if a kid has a complaint about their counselor, what's your complaint procedure? Oh, these kids are always lying. If you get that, run the other way. Um, the... Um, in terms of what does work, um, there are a number of family therapies that have been shown to be effective. Um, there, almost all of the kids currently in residential treatment do not need to be there. Um, nobody needs residential treatment for marijuana, um, uh, and most of these kids, you know, they smoke marijuana and they binge drink. If they do anything at all, there are some kids, amazingly enough, who have not touched a drug who are sent. One of the one of the simple most single reforms you could do to stop this ridiculous system would be to require an an independent evaluation before a child is allowed to be placed. Um, Because what happens now is there's this entire industry of people called educational consultants, and they basically help you choose one of these programs, and they get paid by the schools, and the parents don't know that. Now, not all of them are unethical like that, but you don't know that in advance, and there's no way of knowing. Um, So, okay, Um, in terms of what does work, um, there's a family therapy called functional family therapy and a family therapy called multisystemic family therapy, both of which have had multiple controlled clinical trials showing effectiveness. And they have been tested with kids in the criminal justice system um, on the worst, more severe end of the spectrum. In other words, like they've been tested on the, the kids who have the most problems, and they've been shown to be effective. And the kids that we're talking about here, often the ones who are sent into the private programs who are not sent by the system, who are just sent by their parents, a lot of them don't have any problem other than they don't get along with a new step-parent. Um, and the number of kids that are sent to these things in the midst of divorce is just horrifying. If your kid acts out when you are getting divorced, you should go to boot camp, not the kid. <laughs> um, you know, I mean it's just not fair. It's on a very fundamental level, it's unfair. Um, you know, and but anyway, a, you know, a lot of this stuff also the overwhelming majority of troubled kids will age out by their mid 20s. Um, if your kid has been, you know, ADD, Antisocial um, conduct disorder um, since age two. You know, if you were starting to get reports from nursery school that he was like beating up the babies, um, those are the kids who are less likely to age out. But the ones whose whose um, problems are adolescent onset, you know, kids. Our kids, they do stupid things because they're kids and they need to learn. You know, the only way you can learn mature judgment is to make a few stupid mistakes. The role of the parent has to be to protect the kid from those stupid mistakes, not to make the consequences of those mistakes far worse. Um, The thing that outrages me about the way these kids are sort of blithely sent away is, you know, even if they go to the nicest program in the world that isn't emotionally abusive, you're not allowed to have friends, you're not allowed to have relationships. Um, and the reason I say you're not allowed to have friends is you have to rat your friends out. There's no way to develop trust in these environments. Um, and you're not in some of these places, you get punished for looking at a member of, an op- of the opposite sex. You know, these are kids who will never have a high school reunion, will never have a prom. You know, some of the people who say, you know, those were the best years of my life. Well, these kids, you're just taking them away. Um, you know, and, and I, just, I, I just think it's horrible. Anyway
2: something to that? Not to, and then we'll get to those questions. When I was down in Florida in 2002, or I can't remember now, um, I I went to a a rehab program of therapeutic community to to visit, and was astounded to go into this room, and they had the, it was an open meeting where they had the kids standing up and confessing their drug use to an audience of parents who were allowed in once a week, and then the kids sang songs to them. And what astounded me is this was the seed program that I was in, run by the crackpot who was turning us into Homo Superior race. And um, the songs they were singing were the same songs that had been written by Art Barker, who I just interviewed a few days before this experience, and he'd showed me the songbooks where he and the kids had written these songs. So I was thinking, this is this is insane because the the Urban Report uh, came out in '74. Um, and so it should have put a stop to it then. But here we are uh, in the 21st century with the same program, different name. Um, I, I was sent in by uh, – I was re- referred to the seed by a professor uh, of psycho- psychology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland who was probably you know a distinguished guy, reputable, but he somehow missed – he didn't know – that the Senate had said this was brainwashing and, and not productive, that Science Magazine had done this. So even the professionals out there often don't know what they're doing. And there's another study, I don't know if you mentioned it in your book, it was the DATOS Two study, where they they looked at programs that I would think as an outsider, I visited somewhere, probably like the best kind of therapeutic programs for kids. And DATOS was trying to figure out, it was a by uh, UCLA, was studying the- NIDA, yeah. Um, you know, what was the outcome of this? And they were looking at the best programs, the ones that I visited and didn't think they were that abusive, um, and they found that inexplicably the rate of cocaine use went up after kids got out of these programs. And what I would guess, just from common sense, is they learn a lot about drug use and other bad behaviors once they're in this environment. That's, so,
1: Yeah, know, there's. I mean,
2: these people, I, just to, as a, in lay terms most of the people out there I think are quacks and I wouldn't want to have um, you know my children in their hands
1: that, that's absolutely right and, and the there's actually lots of data on what they call deviancy training um, where kids you know the pot smoking kids think the crack users are cooler and so they find out where to buy the crack Um, and you get this repeatedly. Um, It is iatrogenic to put drug using kids together um, and this is why the first thing I always recommend is either family or individual for that very reason.
0: Let's take two more quick questions. Um, You had your hand up early. Uh,
3: Will Amatrida Catholic University. Uh, I have read uh, criticisms similar to the ones you've made about the religious moralistic overlay of Alcoholics Anonymous. So when I recently met an old school friend who uh, had had problems with alcoholism and was currently active as as a, uh, a mentor in AA, I asked him about this. And his answer was, uh, well, listen, I'm a Harvard agnostic, and if this were true, I wouldn't be associated with it. So apparently it wasn't true for the particular AA he was working with. And I asked about uh, secular alternatives, and he mentioned a program called Rational uh, Recovery, but had no personal uh, experience with it, so couldn't say much about it. Do you write about it in your book? uh,
1: What do you know about it? Actually, not in this book. And, and Rational Recovery actually doesn't really exist as a program anymore. Um, it's basically the guy who wrote the book decided that all you need to do is read the book and then you're fixed. Um, uh, but there is a evidence-based um, self-help group called Smart Recovery, which um, is still small, um, but which has, um, in my previous book, Recovery Options, I cover all the different ones that... Um, I knew of. There's also secular organizations for sobriety, and you know the thing with AA itself is AA. One of AA's basic sayings is "Take what you like and leave the rest." And these are 12 suggested steps. So there is huge individual variation within AA. I mean, I think 12-step programs are absolutely wonderful as amateur self-help voluntary organizations. Um, They can, I personally benefited, you know, they can do a lot of great stuff. The problem is when you start forcing that stuff on people and when professionals start thinking that they can professionalize it and make it into a treatment modality. It should be a voluntary self-help group.
3: Let's go with uh, Nick, and then um, I think we'll break for lunch. Uh, Nick Gillespie with Reason. Uh, Two questions, Maya. First, what is your preferred um, regulatory structure? these types of programs because kids, I mean, parents should have a lot of uh, leeway in in raising their kids, right? And also opinions will vary about when something goes from being, you know, just quackery to being child abuse or, you know, possibly not being legal or whatever. What's the best way that these things should be regulated? And I guess a uh, another topic that's related to that is, is it mostly a lack of information that parents really don't know what's going on and that's why they make these types of decisions? And then my second question is, what is the nexus between failed stand-up comics and
1: <laughs> drug addiction? I just really think we ought to have a recovery program for stand-up comics to make sure they don't start cults, um, uh, to answer the last question first. Um, but um, the um, in terms of a regulatory structure, I just think one of the main problems here is that you've got people who um, – Benefit from locking up kids for as long as possible. Like the more they, the longer they keep the kids, and the more kids they get, the more money they make. So I believe that if you have an in, if you require an independent evaluation before a kid can be placed, and you require ongoing evaluation, that would make a huge difference. The other thing that would also make a huge difference is simply requiring twenty four seven unmonitored access to an abuse hotline. Um, and you know that's not especially onerous. Obviously, you need uh, some kind of people to um, make sure that those complaints are taken seriously. Um, But the thing, I mean, it's kind of interesting on a libertarian perspective, because whose liberty are we talking about? Are we talking about the liberty of a 16-year-old? And, you know, should, because as it stands right now, until you're 18, your parent can hold you in one of these programs without any oversight, and without any appeal. So if you go in at age 12, you're there till you're 18, as long as the program wants to keep you, as long as the parents want to keep paying. And I think that's problematic. As an American, I just think, like, liberty-wise, there's something wrong with that. Now, yes, parents should absolutely have the right to make schooling decisions for their kids and everything like this, but it's a real conflict here and one that needs to be addressed. Um, What was the other question? Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
2: You know the um, the idea of the, the scariness of kids in the world of drugs and you know terrifies parents. But I think a great analogy is driving. You know, I I believe that far more um, uh, teenagers and, and young adults are killed and injured in car accidents than they are through um, drugs. And there was an insurance uh, they, they did a study on driving, and there was a paradox because. A 20-year-old has the best reflexes and eyesight, um, you know, of, of compared to, or better than compared to like a 45-year-old, yet the 20-year-old will get into many more car accidents. And some of it, they thought, well, maybe because they lack experience driving. But the other part of it is, even up until the age of 25, people have uh, much uh, worse impulse control um, and there's other circumstances that just make them worse drivers. and.
1: Male gender.
2: Not all, but um, (laughs) so what Maya was saying, you know, people will grow out of this behavior. And now with cars, because everybody drives, we don't worry about it as a, you know, we don't send people to rehab programs because they keep getting speeding tickets and they're risking death and injury and harming many more others than they do if they're using drugs. But with drugs, we think it's automatic, you know, let's just deal with it that way. So. There's many behaviors that kids do that's dangerous. Becoming you know, being alive is dangerous and um I, I think we just are sort of obsessed with the, the drug issue in an unhealthy way.
1: No, and and I think also that what's amazing is like Virtually no teenagers die of drugs. Um, most of you know there's there's 17,000 adolescent deaths overall out of a population of 40 million, and that's including cancer, including you know accidents, including kids don't kids are hardy. You know our life expectancy is going up. Kids are far less at risk today than they were 20 years ago. But we keep thinking every generation is more and more and more at risk, and the media is really horrible on this because. It sells papers by scaring parents, and, you know, that feeds into selling these programs.
0: Okay. Uh, Thanks for everyone for coming out, and thanks to Maya and Evan for, for speaking.